All right, so we are officially at the halfway point in our study of 2 Timothy. All right, so we've got five weeks down. Today's week six. We've got five more to go. You're welcome. Just letting you know how we're going to get through this thing. And I know for me, especially when I'm studying to teach, it's just really good to get a reminder of, man, what was going on? What's the context? Why was this being written? All right, and I just think, hey, we're halfway through. It's a good reminder to go through it again. So this letter, 2 Timothy, is the second penned to Timothy by a guy named Paul, right? So Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he wrote 2 Timothy, and he wrote a book called Titus. All three of these are, are letters, and they were sent to specific people. Now these three books are often referred to as the pastoral letters, because Paul was writing them to particular pastors dealing with pastoral work in these particular communities. And so Titus had been sent to Crete. And so Paul was writing a letter to Titus talking about issues with the church in Crete and what he was instructing and challenging and calling him to. And he reached out to Timothy because Timothy was a pastor in the church of Ephesus. Now earlier this year, we walked through the book of Ephesians. And so here's a little overview of Ephesus. It was a massive trading city. It was a port city. You had people coming from all over the region to sell goods, trade goods, buy goods. They had a massive library. They were one of the largest academic uh, facilities in the region. And so you had people with all different thought and philosophy and mind and academics. And they were all coming together to Ephesus. And with all of that trade and all of that uh, travel, you had people with so many different religious backgrounds bringing their personal beliefs with them to Ephesus. And so this was just kind of a hotbed. I mean, it was a, a mixed salad, right? It was, a, it was what we claim America is, right? It was people from all different cultures, different religions, different makeups, uh, different um, uh, levels of uh, wealth. I mean, you had a ton of, of variety here in Ephesus, and so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy addressing some of the issues that are going on. Now, one of the big issues is false teaching. That sounds kind of weird to us, right? But you had folks that had all these different religious backgrounds that heard of Christ, and so they started taking the cross in Jesus and they started adding to it, or they started taking a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this religion and they were putting it together, and then they would start teaching that. And so Paul's saying, hey, you've got to be careful, like the congregation uh, that you are a pastor over, they're hearing false teaching, there's false teachers in your church, like you need to address this. Now what's wild is that when Timothy, or uh, when, when Paul writes this letter, he's actually in prison. And he's no stranger to this, he's been in prison, he's been beat up, he's had a lot done to him, but at this point he is on trial and he knows execution is coming. He's on trial, court's not going well, and he knows, man, the end is near for me. And so when you read 2 Timothy, it's actually a very personal letter. A lot of the other letters that Paul penned, you read, and there's a lot to it, but there's not a lot about Paul. But in this one, you start hearing a lot more of his story, his situation kind of coming into this. And so uh, Paul talks a lot about, man, it's the, the end of my time here. Like, I have fought the good fight. I've run the race. He's using language that he hasn't in any of his other letters. He shares in there how lonely he is that he's been abandoned by so many that used to work alongside of him or so many that would follow him. And he's like, man, there's so many that have taken off because they're either ashamed of the fact that I'm constantly getting arrested or they're scared that they too are gonna get arrested if they're affiliated with me. 
And so all of these people, all of these uh, co-workers, all of the people that were involved in the ministry that Paul was in, they're starting to flee and leave him, and Paul is facing an incredibly difficult season all alone. He's like, I'm grateful I have Jesus in this. That even though I've been abandoned by everyone, I know that Jesus has not forgotten me. Again, Paul is concerned with the state of the church in Ephesus, right? Paul actually started it. He planted it. So he went to Ephesus and he started preaching basically on lunch break and grew a big enough group of people that they became a church. And so Paul is very familiar with the church in Ephesus. He's familiar with the issues. He's familiar with the culture. And that's why he's reaching out to Timothy and saying, hey, I love the people that are there. These are things that you need to deal with. Because I love them, I, I love the city, I love what's happening, and I just, I want to see that continue. And again, Paul knows that the end is near, and at the end of this book, you actually see Paul tell Timothy, hey, um, it's getting cold out. I need you to go and get my heavy coat, so I can wear that while I'm in here. I want you to go get my writings and some of my, my personal belongings and collect those and bring them when you come to see me, because the end is near. Now, this letter was written to Timothy. This was, again, the second letter written to Timothy, but letters like this were very rarely written to an individual and just kept to an individual, right? It would be super creepy if I opened a letter that somebody mailed to me and just read it out to you today. Not how we do things, right? But in this day, this letter was written to Timothy, but it was also written to the church. And so Timothy would have taken this, he would have opened it, he would have read it out loud. So this is also for the congregation, So while Paul is challenging Timothy and saying, hey, here's things that need to be addressed. Here's things you need to contend for. Here's stuff that's going on. He's calling the entire church to that. But he's saying, you know what, Timothy? You're the pastor of this church, so everything that you do is setting the bar. It's it's being the example for the church. But you guys get to do this together. That's a beautiful thing. that We don't have to do this on our own, Right? Now, Paul talks a lot about this hardship, this sacrifice of what it means to live the Christian life, and he's dealt with it. I mean, the man's been beat up, thrown into ditches, pelted with stones. He's been arrested. He's been abandoned. He's had a pretty rough go at it, and he's still saying, Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Regardless of his circumstance, he's saying, Jesus is everything to me. And so he's saying, church, you need to contend for the gospel. You need to keep it pure. You need to keep this the main thing. That the gospel, that the good news, that the truth, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, that he rose defeating death. This is the best news that anyone could hear. And you need to keep this the main thing. He says, you know what? Salvation, it actually comes through grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's a gift that God gives you. In this grace, it becomes this insane power that's going to fuel everything that you do. And when you understand this grace, it's actually going to uh, give you the motivation to do whatever you need for something bigger than yourself. So he goes on and he says, you know, you're going to be like a soldier, right, who fights, but there's the bigger army at hand. And he goes on, you're going to be like a farmer 
You're going to be like an athlete. And he talks about these different uh, scenarios and different types of workmen and how the gospel is going to fuel him through that. And he goes on to talk about Jesus and how Jesus was a part of God's bigger plan of saving people. And that's why he went to the cross. That Jesus was bought in to something bigger than himself. And we too need to buy in to something bigger than ourselves. So if I could summarize this letter, it's honestly pretty short, but if I could summarize this letter, it would be guard the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. Timothy, guard it. There's false teachers. There's people that are adding things to it. You need to stop that. You need to guard the gospel because it's too precious. It matters way too much. Christ dying for the forgiveness of sins and raising from the dead is the best news. You need to keep that pure. You need to keep that in front of everyone. Guard it. Second, suffer for the gospel. If you're going to love Jesus, there are people that are not going to like you. They're going to mistreat you. They aren't going to understand you. You're going to experience things that you never thought you would. You are going to suffer for the gospel. Keep going. Continue in the gospel. Man, this thing is such a power source. Stay connected to the gospel. Eat, breathe, sleep the gospel. Let it be what motivates you, what powers you, what pushes you forward. Continue in the gospel and finally proclaim the gospel. If this is the most important thing that anyone could ever hear, it should be the only thing that you are constantly saying. Guard the gospel, suffer for the gospel, continue in the gospel, proclaim the gospel. Church, this was written in a letter to a man named Timothy and to a church in Ephesus, but I'm telling you this, we're called to this today. May we be a church that guards the gospel, that suffers for the gospel, that continues in the gospel and that constantly proclaims the gospel. And so last week, Pastor Brad began looking at the second half of 2 Timothy. And we're going to pick up uh, basically from where he left off. But Brad asked this question. He said, how do you become useful to the master? And then he told a story about big animals playing football against little animals. And I'm from Wisconsin where bucks play basketball and badgers play football, but centipedes and caterpillars don't get their ankles taped, okay? <laughs> Brad's from West Virginia, and he's weird. But he told that story and made this point, far too many people stay in the locker room preparing for the game. You want to be used by the master? Get on the field. Getting your ankles taped, getting a massage, chilling in an ice bath. You're not available. You're out. You want to get used? Get on the field. That's where we're going to pick up today. Verse 19. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. What a beautiful truth. The Lord knows whose are his. 
And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. And then here's a beautiful truth, and at the same time, a really, really, really deep challenge. Man, you can show up to church every time the doors are open. You could be in 37 small groups. You could serve in our kids' ministry, both services, every Sunday for the rest of your life. That does not make you a follower of Jesus. It's incredibly, incredibly easy to be a cultural Christian and play church. So while you try and fool people around you to believe that you are something holier than you actually are, God's saying, nah, I know who's in mine. And Brad said, man, do you think Jesus knew that Judas was gonna betray him? Yeah, he did. He foretold it. He said, man, one of you is gonna betray me and here's how you're gonna do it. And then it happened. Because the Lord knows whose are his. This is the start of Paul's challenge to change. Man, if you call on the name of the Lord, there should be fruit, there should be evidence, there should be a visible change in who you are. It should be easy to tell those who are true followers of Jesus and those who are just showing up on a Sunday. But the best news in this is that you don't have to do this on your own. This is those that call on the name of the Lord together. This isn't a solo thing. Right? We're called to be in community. We're called to do this together. We're called to challenge each other. We're called to push each other, to spur each other on to pursue him together. It's communal. So first off, if you show up on Sunday, every Sunday, and you've never said yes to Jesus, he's saying, man, I know that, and I want you. I want you to be mine. I care about you way too much to let you show up for some empty act. I want you, I want your heart. I want you to call on my name. I want you to be mine. How beautiful. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. I think the wood ones are the best ones. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, I love the way that Brad talked about this last week. He made the statement, he said, the master wants to serve off of clean dishes. How true is that? Master wants to serve off of clean dishes. Here's the deal. If you invited me over for a gourmet meal, and I walk in your house, and it smells incredible, and I look over and I can see stuff is cooking on the stove. You got brisket on the smoker. You got cornbread in the oven. Dude, I'm gonna feast. But if I sit down at your table and I look at the plate in front of me and it's got dried tomato sauce and half a lasagna noodle, I'm probably not gonna wanna eat off it. And if I look at the silverware and that fork 
has frosting on it, but you can tell like somebody licked it and pulled it out of their mouth. There's just a little bit smeared on there. I don't think I'm going to want to use it. And the spoon's got some oatmeal from last, last breakfast, and the knife's got like pork chops stuck on the serrations. I'm not going to want to eat with your silverware. And then I look at the cup and there's lipstick on it. In the bowl that's going to hold like salad or soup or something, it's got like soggy Captain Crunch on the wall of the bowl. Man, I don't care what you've got to offer me. I'm not interested. Church, when God wants to work, he doesn't want our crust to get in the way. This call to holiness, this call to change, it's for your own good, but it's also for the work that God is trying to do in the lives of those around you because the work of God is so good. It's so pure, it's so holy, it's so sweet, it's so encouraging that our gunk cannot get in the way. Now my wife and I have a rule in our house where if somebody cooks, the other person cleans, right? They put away leftovers, they do the dishes, and this rule gets followed about 95% of the time because my wife has an aversion to cleaning the bacon pan, okay? The pan that's like two pans in one and it's got the slits in the top so when you cook your bacon all the fat runs down. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't know if there's a name for it so I just call it the bacon pan. My wife does not clean the bacon pan. Does not matter who cooks, Craig cleans the bacon pan 100% of the time. I made French toast and eggs and bacon on Wednesday, and then yesterday, I cleaned the bacon pan. And while I'm standing at my sink, scrubbing this thing, I'm thinking to myself, why are there some dishes that we're willing to do and some that we aren't? I mean, why are we willing to take certain things and load up the dishwasher and run it and empty the dishwasher and put them away? Why are there certain dishes we're willing to wash by hand, but why is it that every single one of us has a bacon pan that just sits? And it's crusty, and it's cooked on, and it smells gross, and we want nothing to do with it. So we just leave it there. Now, if you think I'm talking about bacon pans, here's the reality. Every single one of us has sin in our life, hurts, habits, hangups that we're willing to deal with, and then we have that one. And we push it off, and we ignore it, and we wait for our husband to clean it. I'm not bitter, I promise. I got married, I said yes, it's my own fault. Now here's the deal, before you think I threw my wife under the bus, Last night I said, bacon pan, and she started laughing. I took that as permission, okay? <laughs> Guys, when God does something, he doesn't want those involved to contaminate it. It's too special. It matters too much. 
And so this is why he calls us to cleanse ourselves. I know the translation that we're reading out of, it actually uses the word purifies, but a better translation would be the word cleanses. So if anyone cleanses himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Then in verse 22, he goes on to share how. He says, flee from youthful passions. Youthful passions. What is that? I think it's easy to read that and be like, oh, he's talking about sex. It's in there. Youthful passions. This word passions in Greek, epithemia, it's the word. And something that I learned when I was in school studying stupid Greek is that most of the original language, there's far more depth and meaning to the words than what our English translations translated as. And so we read this and it's like, turn away from youthful passions, epithemia, it's desire, craving, yearning, longing, desire for what is forbidden, lust. There's so much more going on here than passions. It's not a daytime soap opera. There's a lot here. Flee from youthful passions. And Paul, who wrote this letter, has written many other letters, and this word epithemia is used in many of those letters, but in one of them in particular, a letter to the church in Romans. This word comes up over and over and over again. And so we're going to go on a little rabbit trail and circle back. I promise. It makes sense. Romans 7, verse 7. says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet. Epithmiah. If the law had not said, do not covet. Epithmiah. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So Paul's saying, here's the deal. I had no clue what sin was until the, the law defined it for me. I didn't realize that certain actions, beliefs, desires, I didn't realize that there were things going on in my life that were in fact sin until God identified them as sin. So these things that I would say, man, you have no control over me, you're dead. As soon as I learned of the law and I learned what sin was, it all came to life. Now, is the law itself sin? No. The law is good, and the law that he's referring to is the old covenant. We see God save the people of Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay, 400 years where they have been beaten down. 400 years where they have not had their own land, where they could not be their own people because they were under the thumb of Pharaoh. So for 400 years, they were beat down, broken down. God saved them and took them out into the wilderness, and it was there that he started to build them back up. And so God said, I'm going to put a new identity in you and for you, and a part of this is the law. It was 613 Old Testament rules, laws, regulations, and the purpose was so that you would have right standing both with God and with other people, and for some of them, it was right standing in yourself. 
It's how to operate between you and God and you and other people and you as yourself. And thankfully, God said, man, there's 613. I'm gonna give you the Cliff Notes version. So he gave us the 10 Commandments. And if you take all 613 of these Old Testament laws and you boil them down, they somewhat will tightly fit into the 10 Commandments, which are this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, you shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shouldn't lie. And finally, you shall not covet. The first nine of those are deeds, things you do. The last one is your desire. So God's challenging what you do and also what you desire. This comes out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, do not covet desire. Your neighbor's house, do not covet desire. Your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Because it's not just what you do, but it's also what you desire. Back to 2 Timothy. Youthful passions, youthful desires. What does youthful have to do with that? Do you outgrow it? Is that only for 16-year-olds? No. Youthful, undisciplined. That's what it means. To be youthful, untrained, undisciplined. So not only do you have these desires, but they're undisciplined desires. You're untrained in how to manage them, how to work with them, how to tame them. And so he's saying, you know what? Flee from undisciplined epithemia. Flee from undisciplined desires, undisciplined cravings, undisciplined yearnings, undisciplined longings, undisciplined lusting, undisciplined coveting. Like fleeing youthful passions requires a willingness to flee situations that will provoke you to sin. Provoke you to sin. This is what it means to become disciplined. Are the shows and the movies that you watch are they feeding your desire? Are the social media accounts that you follow, are they feeding your desires? Are the people that you're hanging out with feeding your desires? Are the places that you go feeding your desires? Is the way that you spend your resources feeding your desires? Because here's the truth, those desires are already there. You don't have to create them, they're there. It's what you feed them that you can control. The question is whether you're gonna provoke them through undisciplined or youthful conduct or will you have self-control to make sure that they don't flare up. And again, the beauty here is that Paul doesn't tell us to just stop. It's not like, hey, just stop having them. He's like, no, stop doing that and start doing this. What does he say? Flee from youthful passions and pursue Righteousness, right? Flee from youthful passions and instead pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, right? Again, with all of those that call on the Lord, with, like 
in community with other people, strive together, pursue these things together, pursue being righteous, pursue being peaceful, pursue having faith, pursue love. Stop doing these and start doing these. Well, some of what he listed here, they're fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, fruitfulness, self-control, gentleness, right? He's telling Timothy, you know what? If you quit pursuing what's going to harm you and you start pursuing the fruit that comes from the spirit, you're gonna be a much healthier person. You're gonna be cleansed. You're gonna be useful to the master. Again, we get to do this together, church. We get to do it together. We get to challenge together. We get to correct together. We get to walk together. We get to strive together. You know, the absence of striving would be evidence of the absence of the spirit, right? An apple tree is only good if it grows apples. Are you producing fruit? Because if you don't see fruit, something is not operating the way it should in you. Verse 23. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels, right? So Paul circles back to this. Last week in verse 16, Brad started talking about this idea of quarrels and uh, all of this chatter and talk. Verse 16, it says, avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's not a good thing, just letting you know. It's rot. It's disease. It's sickness. Did you guys just hear the fly in my microphone? (laughs) (laughs) See, the church in Ephesus had a major false teacher problem. He's like, if this goes on, it's going to spread like gangrene. You've got to nip it in the bud. You need to deal with it. Right? There's things that are going to face your congregation that you yourself need to get involved in. And then he says, there's little arguments that aren't worth it. There's certain things you go to bat for and there's certain things that you just stay in the dugout. Because if all you're doing is picking fights with everybody, you're not setting yourself up to succeed very well. You know, last week, Pastor Brad used the example of literally the last couple of years within this. And he's like, man, I saw people uh, argue and fight and turn on each other over masks and vaccines and quarantines. And people picked sides and camps and they entrenched themselves so deeply that that became ultimate to them. Like I know people that no longer go to our church over issues like this. And that's sad. And I know a lot of people that left a lot of churches over issues like this. Here's the deal, a mask does not offer salvation, a vaccine does not offer salvation, a quarantine does not offer salvation, nor does being anti those things. Only Jesus does. And that's why at this church we're gonna bang the drum of Jesus every Sunday, we don't care what's going on in the world. Contend for the gospel protect the gospel, continue in the gospel, proclaim the gospel. 
I mean, anytime you make your personal preference ultimate, you've become a false teacher. Anytime your preference or your opinion becomes ultimate, you have become a false teacher. It's a heart check. And Paul's calling Timothy to challenge those who are teaching false things in his church. Verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do as well. Man, I love this. It's how God works and it's how God uses us to do his work. That's what this is. It's how God works and it's how he uses us to do his work. And so we're gonna start with God. We're gonna start in the second half of this, right? This is how God works. God grants repentance. He gives it. This word repentance in Greek, again, you're getting a Greek lesson today. It's this word metanoia. It means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of soul, a deep inner change. God gives that change. That's what happens when you say yes to Jesus. God grants repentance. He gives repentance. God gives it. God does that. I can't. You can't. If you've got loved ones and you're like, I want them saved so bad, it's not your job. That's God's job. But this is how we do it. We get to instruct, we get to teach, and we get to be patient and kind, we do it with gentleness, and we don't quarrel. If God's job is offering repentance, it says that the servant's job is to teach, to instruct the opponent. And how do we teach? With patience, with kindness, with gentleness. It means being a peacemaker, not easily angered, wanting to bless people and not argue with them. When we set this stage, when we're clean vessels, when you set the table with clean plates, God gets to deliver the gourmet meal. The way that we do our job affects the way that God does his job. And I say that and that sounds very scary. I don't have control over God whatsoever, but I do get to set the table for him. I get to set the table for him. What a privilege is that? Man, to be used by God, it's one of the greatest things you will ever experience in your life. And so God grants repentance and then it continues on. He gives this repentance. And then that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. You know who teaches them? We do. Guys, we're walking hand in hand in the work that God is doing. Repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth, the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are in God, what is right and what is wrong. And it is through that knowledge of what is true 
that it brings us to our senses. It's the truth that brings clarity to the blind. It's the truth that sobers us up from our drunkenness. It's the truth that wakes us up from our stupor and once we are awoken and our senses are active, we can actually escape the snare of the devil. Here's the deal, the devil does not snare you by your hands. I don't see anybody in here sitting here with their hands behind their back, haven't seen it at Kroger, have seen it at Walmart. (laughs) The devil doesn't snare you behind your, your back. He's not holding your hands back from doing good. He's up here. He's a deceiver and he twists just a little bit. Here's the deal, if your senses are down, you don't know what's right and not. It's through understanding the truth that your senses become awake. That's when your senses are awake that you can see how he's playing games with your mind. It's repentance that leads to an understanding of the truth that wakes up and allows us to see the ways that we've been deceived. Church, it's our job to set the table. God does the ultimate work. We just get to set the table. And we're called to teach. And I know some of you are like, man, there is no chance that I'm getting up there and putting a microphone on. Well, I'll tell you what, I said that too. But you don't have to get on a stage and wear a microphone and teach people. You go to work every day. You walk out of your front door. You go to the grocery store. You get your oil changed. Every day we interact with people and we have the opportunity to teach them both with our mouth, with our word, and with our deeds. And we are to instruct, we are to teach and be patient and kind and gentle and not provoked. And when I hear that, I think of love. You know what we're called to do? We're called to love. 1 Corinthians 13, pretty popular, pretty famous. This is the New King James Version because I love how it starts. It says, love suffers long. Love is long-suffering. Amen. You been married? Mm-hmm. Love is long-suffering. You been friends with somebody for a long time? It's long-suffering. Love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy, it doesn't parade itself, it's not puffed up, it doesn't behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now Jesus went to his disciples and he said, I have a new command for you. Right, Paul in Romans 7 is talking about this old law, this old covenant law. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he does all 613 of them perfectly, which is why when he goes to the cross, it was completely unjust. He was the furthest thing from a criminal because he did everything right. 
But on that cross, he took the punishment for my sin, for your sin, for all of humanity's sin. And when he came to his disciples, he said, I've got a new command for you. I fulfilled all 613 of those, but I've got one. Love one another. That's how people are gonna know that you're my disciples is how you love each other. And so Paul's bringing this back in. You wanna know how you set the table for the ultimate work of God? You love people. You love them. Because when we love people well, it sets the stage for God to do the ultimate. What a privilege it is to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for cool weather, that the leaves are changing. Thank you for the beauty in creation, for the seasons that we get to experience. And I thank you for bringing us all here this morning, in person and online. Thank you for 2 Timothy, thank you for Paul, that even in what he was facing, that he wanted to challenge, that he wanted to teach, that he wanted to inspire. Thank you that in the face of everything that he dealt with, that to him the gospel was the top priority. Thank you that even though this letter was written to a man and to a church, that we too get to sit under the amazing teaching that's in it. I pray that we would apply these things, Father. I pray that we would be clean vessels, that we'd be willing to wash the dishes. I pray that when we encounter people, that we would love them well, that we would be patient, that we would be kind, that we wouldn't be quarrelsome. And more than that, God, we just pray that you would save, that you would draw people to yourself and that you would save them. And so this week, I pray for boldness for our church as we go out. In everything that we do, that we would love well and that you would work in ways that we can't even imagine. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, if you would, stand with me. Now, may we be a church of clean vessels. May we be a church that cleans the bacon pan. May we be a church that teaches truth. May we be a church that loves well. May we be a church that sets the stage for God to do the ultimate. May we be a church that guards the gospel, suffers for the gospel, continues in the gospel, and proclaims the gospel. Amen? Amen. Man, what a privilege it's been to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming. If you guys would help stack chairs, that would be super, super helpful. Love you guys. See you next week.